Well, if there's one thing about Americans, we'll pay to be scared, won't we? I mean, throughout the years, we've proven that we will shell out cash in order to be frightened out of our wits, whether it's a monster or it's a serial killer like Freddie or Jason. But in the last 10 years, zombies have become really big. And really, it really, the craze sort of started in the United States in 1969, where an indie film called Night of the Living Dead gained a cult following. But there's a revival of it now, and now there are you know, zombie movies, zombie TV shows, zombie games, zombie, you know, zombie events. And so I, you can imagine anytime something becomes culturally relevant, people are going to ask me about it. And I get asked the question from, one, from time to time, Mark, is there such a thing as zombies? Are there such a thing as zombies? And so I've thought about it a lot, and I was pretty careful about answering that question. I mean, first of all, you and I need to understand that the cultural idea of zombies really don't exist. It comes out of Haitian voodoo. And in that highly superstitious part of the world, highly suggestible part of the world, people begin to believe the idea that corpses could be animated. And, and I'll be honest, I mean, just keeping it real here, I understand how that could happen. Unless you're in the funeral business or you're in the medical world, probably nobody has seen as many corpses as I have. And a corpse is an unnatural thing. You know, it's a human, but it's not alive. And we expect humans to be alive. And if you sit and look at a corpse, honestly, between you and me, it'll start playing with your mind a little bit. So I can understand in a highly suggestible part of the world, when people looked at corpses, they could begin to believe that maybe they were being animated. And there was a whole legend that came up around that. So again, I want to make sure you understand there are no such thing as ghosts or no such thing as zombies. Those really don't exist as they're portrayed. But I want you to think about something for a moment because it could well be that zombies exist and maybe not quite like we've thought about it, but in a different way. In case you want to be a zombie, I looked this up in, in, in research. If you want to be a zombie, you need three things. Okay, you ready? First of all, you have to be animated. You have to be living while dead. Number two, you have to be mindless. And number three, you have to be controlled by a sorcerer or a demon. Those are the three essentials to being a zombie. So when the question is asked, is there such thing as zombies, maybe we ought to back, out, back up a little bit before we answer that too quickly because there's some verses in the Bible that sort of speak into this. In the book of 1 Timothy chapter 5, verse 6, the Bible's talking about a woman, could just as easily be talking about a man. But it says, she who gives herself to pleasure is dead while she's living. Hey, you read what I read dead while living. Let's look at that one more time. Now, that's God. That's not you. That's not me. The Bible doesn't say she's sick. It doesn't say she's underperforming, making mistakes. God says dead. The person who lives in pleasure. And you may know somebody like that. I mean, that's all they do is they, they, just, they just live for fun. They don't think about the ramifications. They don't even think about how they're hurting other people, but they think, man, I'm really living. God said, nope, you're a zombie. You're dead while you're living. This is the two verses that I've been thinking about as I get ready for this series. These have been my verses that I go to every day, and I look at them several times a day. I want you to hear what God's instructions are to me. So if you ever wonder if Mark doing, is doing what he should be doing, listen to this, because this is God talking to me. Gently instruct those who oppose the truth. You ever listen to a minister, and it's like he's slapping people with the Bible? Well, that's not God's way. God says, Mark, there are going to be people that oppose the truth, and you gently instruct them. Why, why gently? Well, because, look at this, perhaps God will change those people's hearts and they will learn the truth. Then they will come to their senses and escape from the devil's trap. Look at this, for they have been held captive by him to do whatever he wants. You remember the three things essential for a zombie? Animated, living while dead, mindless, and under control. And scripture says there are people that oppose the truth and they're like that. They're under the control of Satan, held captive by him to do whatever he wants. So, 
Not in the cultural sense, not in the movie sense, but is there such a thing as the undead? Yeah. There are zombies. There are zombies among us. In fact, I hope you don't take this, and I hope you don't feel badly toward me, but I used to be a zombie. I was. And some of you used to be zombies. Because in Ephesians chapter 2, verse 2, the Bible says, As for you, Mark, you were dead in trespasses and sin. One more time. I want to make that clear. God is not saying you used to make mistakes, because I still make them. It wasn't like you, you underperformed, Mark. Here's how God looks at a person before they know Christ, before they have life in them. God says to me, you were dead. I was dead in trespasses and sin. Love verse 4. But because of his great love for us, God who is rich in mercy has made us alive in Christ. So in this culture that you and I live in today, in a culture pretty much of a lot of zombies out there, I want us to understand there are zombies and there are breakouts. There are people who are dead while they're alive, and there are people who break out and go on to enjoy the destiny that God has for them. And so for eight weeks, we're going to explore this. And as I said in the, in the, in the talk a moment ago in the, before the message, guys, for me to do eight weeks on a series, I have to really believe it's vitally important, and I'm convinced that it is. We have a culture out there that, to me, my way of thinking, is sort of shuffling mindlessly along, murmuring all the same thing. You can't decipher what it is but it's like we're shuffling, going nowhere. I don't think that that has to happen for you and me. Your kids don't have to be zombies. They can break out. You don't have to be a zombie. You can break out. Your marriage doesn't have to be a zombie marriage. You can break out. And I want to show you generation breakout. That's a term you're going to hear me say over and over again. Because when you study the Old Testament and you look at the people of God, God's chosen people, from the call of Abraham all the way to the end of the Old Testament, for the most part, they struggle to follow him. It's really hard to find a generation who gets it right. But for one shining moment, there was about a generation and a half who got it right. And here's the thing. If you got my Facebook post or my email this week, what's interesting to me about this generation is they didn't have a legacy to build on because they had to break free from a generation of zombies. So today, we're going to begin our study. I mean, eventually, we'll look at their first steps. We'll see how they slipped and fell. We'll see how they got back up and went on to destiny. But today... I want to spend our time looking at how generation breakout broke out from a generation of zombies. If you have your Bible with you, and I hope you'll bring it to this series or an electronic device where you have a Bible app because you'll want to own these scriptures for yourself. Um, We'll be in Numbers 13 in just a moment. But it is the story of God's people, Israel. And to give you a real quick thumbnail sketch of their history, they were a family. They moved to Egypt when Joseph was there. But within 400 years, they had proliferated to two and a half to three and a half million people. And after 400 years, there was a Pharaoh who did not know the history of Joseph. And he began to abuse and oppress the Jewish people. And he made them slaves. He made them build the pyramids. And folks, if we've understood anything about history, whether it's the history of the world or it's the wretched history of a section of American history, we learn that slaveholders don't like to let go of their slaves. And so when God said to Moses, go tell Pharaoh to let my people go, Pharaoh didn't want to do it. In fact, Pharaoh asked the question, who is your God? So God gave him his calling card 10 times. And on the 10th time, which the plague was the death of the firstborn, Pharaoh said, go, leave. And so Moses, God's chosen leader, began to lead the Israelites toward their destiny. Because from Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, God had always said to his people, I am going to give you a land, and it's a good land. And you're going to possess the land. So that message had been given for hundreds of years. And so when Moses said to the people of Israel, God has called me and I am going to lead you to the land that he's been promising for centuries. 
Well, the people of Israel started out on their journey. But it wasn't long before they came to a body of water called the Red Sea, and there was no way for them to get across. And as they stood on the brink of the Red Sea, they had another problem, because Pharaoh rethought things. I guess he'd gotten over the funeral of his eldest son. And Pharaoh took his army, and he was chasing them down to bring his slave labor force back. And now the Israelites are caught in between the pinchers. They have the Red Sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army barreling down behind them. And so at this moment, the Israelites don't know what to do. But God does. And if you've read the scriptures or if you've even like, read history, you know that at that moment, God opened up the Red Sea. How did he do it? I don't know. He just did. And the Israelites began marching across. And it took a long time for them to get across because you've got two and a half, three and a half million people on foot. It took them a long time to get across, but they got across. Now, Pharaoh, you talk about stubborn. If I'm Pharaoh, and after all I've been through, I watch the Red Sea open up and a bunch of people walk across. It's like, that's it. I'm out. I'm finished here. But have you ever noticed how stubborn people can be stupid too? I mean, it's the strangest thing how stubbornness and stupidity always go together. But anyway, we'll set that aside for another message. (laughs) Pharaoh begins to chase them across the Red Sea. And at that moment, as soon as the Israelites get on the other side, God opens the car wash, and the Red Sea closes back and drowns Pharaoh and his army. Now, listen, guys. If I'm the Israelites, and after God has done all that, I'm like, I'm in. I mean, he's God, and we'll just do what he says. But no. I mean, from that point on, they just drag their feet all the time. They complain about this. They complain about that. They run out of water. God gives them water out of a rock. They get hungry. God sends them manna. By the way, do you know what the Hebrew word for manna means? This is true. I'm not kidding with you. Manna means what is it? They didn't know what it was. I know what it was because in the New Testament, the Bible says they ate angels' food. That was chocolate chip cookies. God just <laughs> rained them. <laughs> rained them from the sky. So, I, mean, after, I mean, God did thing after thing after thing. Now, here's what's, here's what's salient to our discussion right now. Within a matter of months, they get to a little town called Kadesh Barnea. Kadesh Barnea was on the border of the promised land. Right beyond it was the land that God had promised. This is a little complicated, and I'll fill in some details in a few moments. But there were spies sent into Canaan. And when you read Numbers chapter 13, it looks like God told Moses to send spies. But hang on to that. It's a little more complicated than that. There were 12 tribes in Israel, and God selected, or God told Moses to select one leader from each tribe to go into Canaan and check out the land. And all 12 of them come back. Okay, could we just pull over the road and stop, on the side of the road and stop for a moment and draw a subtotal? God has a plan. He wants to get them into the land. He's made provision for them. He's got promises. He's told the people to go into the land. They've got spies going over there. It's at that moment that I want us to pick up the story, and we're going to do some reading for a few moments, okay? Numbers chapter 13, verse 25. After exploring the land for 40 days, the men, the spies, returned. They reported to the whole community what they had seen and shown them the fruit that they had taken from the land. This was their report to Moses. We entered the land you sent us to explore, and it's indeed a beautiful country, a bountiful country, a land flowing with milk and honey. Here is the kind of fruit it produces. They found a cluster of grapes so big it took two men and a pole to carry the single cluster back. But, boy, that is the word that gets us in so much trouble when God says something, right? But... The people that are living there are powerful, and their towns are large and fortified. We even saw giants there. But Caleb, let's introduce Caleb, because Caleb is a rock star. Caleb is part of Generation Breakout. He is one of the two founding members of Generation Breakout. Do you know what Caleb's name means? You ready for this? It means dog. 
I don't know if that's significant. I would just tell you this. When we were pregnant with our second son, Mary Alice and I settled on the name. We were going to call him James Caleb. And so Mary Alice went to work, and she had one of those books that had the meanings of names. She called me, and she said, do you know what James Caleb means? I said, no, I don't know. She said, James is a derivative of Jacob. It means tricky, and Caleb means dog. We're about to call this kid Tricky Dog. <laughs> so we changed to Jared Michael. Well, let's, let's meet Caleb. Caleb tried to quiet the people as they stood before Moses. Let's go at once to take the land, he said. We can, focus on that, we can certainly conquer it. But the other men, the ten, who had explored the land with him disagreed. We can't. Do you see that? The Bible never wastes any words. Caleb said, we can. And the ten said, we can't go up against them. They're stronger than we are. So they spread this bad report about the land among the Israelites. The land we traveled through and explored will devour anyone who goes there. All the people we saw there were huge. We even saw giants there. Next to them, we felt like grasshoppers, and that's how they felt about us. Are you kidding me? They're spies. They're not supposed to talk to anybody. You think they went over there and said, hey, we're conducting a psychological exercise. How do you feel about us? No, no. And then, this is chapter 14 now, I'm going into 14. Then the whole community began weeping out loud, and they cried all night. Their voices rose in a great chorus of protest against Moses and Aaron. If only we had died in Egypt, or even here in this wilderness, they complained. Why is the Lord taking us to this country only to have us die in battle? When Moses is telling this story in Deuteronomy 1, the people said, the Lord must hate us. Our wives and our little ones will be carried off as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to return to Egypt? Then they plotted among themselves... Let's choose a new leader and go back to Egypt. Well, that's a great idea. Then Moses and Aaron fell face down on the ground before the whole community of Israel. Two of the men who had explored the land, Joshua. Now we meet the other founder of Generation Breakout. Joshua, the son of Nun, and Caleb tore their clothing. That was a sign of grief. They said to all the people of Israel, the land we traveled through and explored is a wonderful land. And if the Lord be pleased with us, he will bring us safely into that land and give it to us. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Don't rebel against the Lord, and don't be afraid of the people of the land. They're helpless. They have no protection. The Lord is with us. Don't be afraid of them. But the whole community began to talk about stoning Joshua and Caleb. Man, they just wanted to fire Moses. They wanted to kill Joshua and Caleb. I wish I knew how to preach. Because the next line gets all over me. Ladies and gentlemen, in America, we're locked into all kinds of debates about what's right and what's wrong. And some people think this and some people think that. But I want you to look at this next line. Then the glorious presence of the Lord appeared. Hey, when the Lord appears, he doesn't appear to take a poll. He doesn't appear to check out who's for this and who's for that. When God shows up, the debate's over. And the Lord showed up and he appeared in the tabernacle and he said to Moses, how long will these people treat me with contempt? Will they, I've got this set off in my notes. Will they never believe me? After all the miraculous signs that even I've done among them, I will disown them and destroy them with a plague. Then I'll make you into a greater nation, mightier than they, you know, than they are. And Moses intercedes and says, oh, Lord, please don't do that. You know, the Egyptians will hear about it, and they'll think you weren't strong enough to bring them into the land. And I think it was always God's will for Moses to intervene. So God said to Moses, okay, I won't kill them. But this is where we, this is where we see Generation Zombie. Verse 28, now tell them this. As surely as I live, declares the Lord, I will do the very things I heard you say. You will all drop dead in the wilderness. Because you complained against me, every one of you who is 20 years old or older will die. 
You will not enter and occupy the land I swore to give you. The only exceptions will be Caleb and Joshua. You said your children would be carried off as plunder. Well, I will bring them safely into the land, and they will enjoy what you have despised. But as for you, you will drop dead in the wilderness. For the next 38 years, these zombies walked around until they died, stumbling, muttering, walking around. When I was in college, I calculated how many funerals a day they would have to have for all these people to die. But generation zombie. Well, let's just ask this today because this is all we're going to work with. What separated generation breakout from generation zombie? Could I just answer that first of all, not to be cute, but it's what always separates. It's what always divides. I mean, it's what separates the thief who went to heaven and the thief who went to hell on the sides of the cross with Jesus. It's, it's what separated Cain from Abel. I mean, this thing that separates is huge. Before I tell you what it is, let's notice something. Would you notice, please, that all 12 of the spies agreed on the material facts of their reconnaissance? They all came back and said the same thing. It's a great land. It's very prodigious. It's a land that flows with milk and honey, and there are giants there. The 10 spies didn't say it was a bad land, and Joshua and Caleb didn't say there weren't spies there. See, here's the thing. We live in a culture today that has the idea that if you're a God follower, you have one set of facts, and if you're not a God follower, you have another set of facts. But the fact of the matter is, we all sit on the same body of facts. Hey, listen, I believe in special creation. I believe God created the world. I have non-theist friends who believe that it was just unguided evolution, natural selection, just random rolls of the cosmic dice. Now, here's the, here's the thing. I've seen all the evidence they've seen. I was taught evolution from the second grade on in public schools in Texas. I, I've read all kinds of books. I'm, I'm not missing any information. I'm not missing any instruction. And they're not missing all the complexity and sophistication of natural order. They see that. They understand all the rules and facts of DNA. And they understand all the special properties of the forces that are in our nature. So we're really sitting on the same body of evidence. It's just simply this. God informs my narrative. We may, agree on, we may agree on what we see in the present, but we disagree about the future. See, that's, that's the thing that makes things so different. I mean, these 12 spies all agreed on what they saw. They just saw different futures. The 10 spies said, uh, we just think we're going to die. I don't think it's a good idea. And Joshua and Caleb said, God is informing our narrative. Basically, it came down to this. Joshua and Caleb, generation breakout said, God says, the ten spies and generation zombie said, we think. And that's the difference. In the Bible, there's a word. And this five-letter English word, it's the, it's the cut point in the Old Testament. It's the cut point in the life of Jesus. And it's the cut point in the New Testament. God is looking for one thing more than anything else. See, some of you grew, some of you grew up in a traditional church. And you think that God is looking for rituals. And my heart goes out to you because they're so empty, aren't they? And some of us grew up in a church where we, we learned legalism, that God is into rules. And we think God is all about us dotting every I and crossing every T. And I feel bad for us. It's hard to get out of your hair, isn't it? And some of us have been in the culture, and we have the idea that all the church wants is money. And we think God is after our money. You realize God owns everything. I mean, I realize he can turn out my lights and take all my stack as small as it is. You know what God's after? He's never been, he's never been fuzzy about it. From the Old Testament through the life of Jesus, God is after a five-letter word in your life and my life. Faith. Faith. Nothing is more important to him than your faith. 
And that's what made the difference between generation breakout and generation zombie. I want you just to listen to some of the verses, and these are just, these are just you know, a thumbnail selection of hundreds of verses on faith. I mean, when Jesus healed some blind guys, he said, according to your faith, be it unto you. There was a place where they didn't believe in Jesus. And the Bible says he did not do many miracles there because of their lack of faith. It doesn't say he didn't do any miracles there because he didn't give money. Or he didn't do any miracles there because they weren't religious. He didn't do any miracles there for one thing. They didn't have faith. There was a woman who had a health problem for years. He said to her daughter, your faith has healed you. Go in peace and be freed from your suffering. And a leper that Jesus healed. Jesus said to him, rise and go. Your faith has made you well. One of my favorite verses in the Bible, because I'm ungodly and I need God, the Bible says to the man who does not work in order to be saved, but who trusts God, who justifies the wicked, his faith is credited for righteousness. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 7, here's a verse that challenges generation zombie. The Bible says we live, we walk by faith and not by sight. And then the quintessential verse on this text, Hebrews chapter eleven six, which says, without faith, it is impossible to please God for the one who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he's a consistent rewarder of those who consistently seek him. Faith is so big. But here's our problem, okay? Here's our problem. There's a cultural definition of faith and there's a biblical definition of faith. And when we try to apply the cultural definition to the Bible, we get all balled up. So let's make sure we understand what the biblical definition of faith is because this is what separated the generations. Now here's the cultural definition. The cultural definition of faith is I believe something is going to happen. Now I even have secular people, sometimes sort of uh, (laughs) patronizing media types, who will interview me every once in a while and they'll, they'll ask me about my faith as though my faith has some sort of psychological propensity to it. Don't ask me about my faith. Ask me about my God. It is my faith that connects me to my God. There is no power in my faith by itself. It's what my faith is plugged into. So, But there are those who have this cultural idea of faith is believing that something is going to happen. And sometimes that's why non-theists make fun of us who are Christians. It's when they hear that we are people of faith, they take the cultural definition and they apply it to us. And I understand. I don't blame them. If I were in their shoes, I'd make fun of us too. If we're just a bunch of people who throw the ball up and hope there's something downfield. But that isn't the Bible definition of faith. In fact, it's, it's infinitely different. All you have to do to understand what faith is is just go back to the story that we've told about the ten, ten spies and the, twelve, and the two spies. See, the ten spies went over to the land. They saw everything there. And yet when it came down to making a decision, you ready for this? They said, we think God is wrong. We know what God has said. And God, had, I mean, God had been clear for 400 years. But they said, I'm sorry, we think God is wrong. And they went back and told their story to the majority there, and the majority shrugged their shoulders and said, we're sorry too, we, we think God is wrong. But Joshua and Caleb went over, and they saw the land, and they said, we think God is right. You know, a few moments ago, we sang God is good, but can you sing God is right? I think that's a lot more struggle. Struggle in the culture that we live in today. If you want to know what faith is, ladies and gentlemen, it's as simple as believing God is right. And if you want to know what causes generation breakout to break out from generation zombie, it's simply this. Generation zombie says we think God is wrong, and generation breakout says we believe God is right. So where are you today? Where am I? 
Are we, are we the stumbling, mindless, going through life, putting our finger up to the wind, listening to what everybody says? And when God speaks, we, we say, well, I'm gonna, you have to prove that you're right. And, and, or it could be that we say, God, I think you're right on some things, but I think you're wrong on other things. Are we part of that? Or are we a generation that says we believe God is right? Well, in the few moments that I have left, I want to give you five observations and two takeaways. I hate it when a minister has seven points this late into the sermon, but these will be fast, okay? Here's my first observation. I want to make sure we're clear on something. Because some of us came from a very authoritarian religion, and you had an authoritative or authoritarian minister or priest, and the message was the church is always right, or the religion is always right, or the minister is always right. Please know I am not saying that in a million years. I am not always right. In fact, anything I say, you ought to go home and check it with the Bible. And I am not saying New Spring is always right. We want to please God, but I'm sure we're doing things that when we get to heaven, we'll find out we're not what we should be doing. So please know, I'm not telling you our religion is always right. I hate religion. And I'm sure not telling you I'm always right because I need to be submissive to this just like you and I do. So I want us to draw a distinction. It's not that religion is always right. I'm just saying God is always right. And, and let's make sure that we draw that wide distinction or else it, it could challenge the way we think. Number two, and this one is really tough in postmodern America, and it'll be a challenge for some of us. Before I can understand that God is right, I must embrace the reality that God has a position. See, in our postmodern culture, we're told that each of us has our own truth. And so what may be true for me might not be true for you. And what is right for me may not be right for you. And we have this idea that God is the Pillsbury Doughboy in the sky that just says whatever. But he's not. When you open the pictures or the, the pages of Scripture and you look at the pictures of God, what you will discover is that, yes, God has a position. And when these spies went over into the land, it wasn't like God said to the ten spies, oh, you poor guys don't want to go. Well, I guess y'all can go back to Egypt, Joshua and Caleb. I'll see if I can work something out. No, God had a position, and God has positions today. He has positions on things like human sexuality. He has positions on things like marriage. He has positions on money. He has positions on who you live, how you live, and who you serve. God has positions on things. I, I can't pretend God doesn't have positions. Here's the third thing. Wow, if we learn anything from this, we learn God is going where he's going. You know, he got outvoted that night. The subcommittee voted 10 to 2 against God. And the majority voted against God. Did God sit up in heaven and wring his hands and say, oh no, the majority's voted against me. I guess I'll have to change course. No, no. God's going where he's going. I mean, he's, he's going where he's going regardless of the ideas of the world. He's going where he's going regardless of the Congress. He's going where he's going regardless of the Supreme Court. He's going where he's going regardless of whoever's president. God is going where he's going regardless of what I think. He's going where he's going. He's just looking for people who believe he's right. See, the thing about us, he couldn't take the generation zombie, the, the God is wrong generation. The worst thing in the world is to take a God is wrong generation into a promised land. The fourth thing, and I'll give it quickly. This is a tale of two opposite directions, not similar roads. In all these years of pastoring, I've discovered that a lot of times people think God is wrong, and they say, well, I, you know, I, it's sort of a salad bar approach to God. You ever go through a salad bar? I mean, you know, a salad bar, you can take what you want and leave what you don't want. I mean, I never take broccoli. That's an evil weed. I hate that stuff. 
We have a lot of doctors at New Spring and always tell me I should eat broccoli. And you're right, but I just leave it. So it's like, I don't like that. And I, I take stuff that I like. And I get a full plate at the end. And I can say, I've been through a solid Some of us have this idea with God. Oh, God, I like what you have to say about serving people, but I don't like what you have to say about sexuality. You know, I just think it's okay for me to have multiple partners. God, I think you're right about this, but I think you're wrong about that. We have this salabar approach to God. And you know what the weird thing is? We convince ourselves that we're pretty much on God's road. We're, we're maybe just kind of on a side road. Hey, let's be clear. God is right, <clears throat> and God is wrong or opposite directions. Let's at least be honest. If we think God is wrong, then let's understand that <clears throat> we're going in an opposite direction. The fifth point, the fifth observation may be one of the most important parts of the sermon. Because when we solid bar God, when we say, God, I believe you're right about this, but I believe you're wrong about this, and if you say something to me or if I hear something that you've said, then I'm going to put it to the test and see if I want to believe it or not. I want to give you a human scenario that will help us understand what we're saying to God. Back in the days when I used to counsel, I'd run across this from time to time. There would be a woman who had established her faithfulness, her trustworthiness, her veracity. Here is a woman who always tells the truth. Here is a woman who has no bad intentions. She loves her husband. She's totally committed to him. Time after time after time, she has proved her faithfulness. But she is with a guy who is suspicious. And it doesn't matter how many times she proves her faithfulness, he like holds her accountable every time. How long, where have you been? How long were you there? Who were you with? Let me see your phone. Let me have your passwords. Now work with me. You don't have to be a marriage counselor to deal with this. What's going to happen in a situation where someone has proved his or her truthfulness, and yet every time the other person talks to them, they question it? I can spell it out for you in one word. I've seen it over and over. Distance. Because ultimately, that trustworthy person will say, if you want to accept my trustworthiness, I am going to step back. And folks, when we say, well, I think God is right about this, but I think he's wrong about this, and if God proves his rightness to me, then I'll accept him. After a while, God does just what he did with the Israelites, with Generation Zombie. God just says, you know, I'll leave the room. And I don't know about you, but I can't afford that. Well, here are the two takeaways, Okay. I've got just a few minutes. Let me give this to you. And I love this first one because it helps me. I hate complication. Here's number one. When I settle that God is right, life becomes as uncomplicated as knowing what he says. If God is right, then all I need to know is what does he say? So think about that and, 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 and let that percolate in your heart and life as you think about the sermon this week. But here's the second takeaway. When you adopt the idea in your life that God is right, it ushers you into a life of power. I don't mean power over people, but powerful living. You know, I, I run into so many Christ followers today that don't have any, what we used to call mojo. That's not a good term, but I mean, I'm just saying, it's like they just sort of bump along the bottom. I don't think God destined us to live that way. And really, here's the thing that I began to think about as I prepared for this series. If I've got any area of my life where there's an absence of power, I need to look and see if in that area I've told God that he's wrong about something. Because when you tell God that he is right, it brings you in to a zone of power. Let me, listen, let me give you what Jesus said. Because the disciples came to him one time, they tried something and it blew up on them. And they came to Jesus and they said, why couldn't we? Why'd we fail? He replied, it is because you have so little faith. Okay, let's take our definition. It is because you have so little, God is right. 
I tell you the truth, if you have God as right, as small as a mustard seed, you could say to this mountain, be moved into the sea, and it would obey you, for with you nothing would be impossible. God is just looking for people who believe he's right. See, that faith is the cut point between a life of powerlessness and a life of power. We have guys looking for generation breakout. Are you open? Do you realize this story is as old as the very beginning of time? Do you remember what it was that Satan said to our first parents, Adam and Eve? Satan came along to Adam and Eve and he said, uh, did God say you can't have any, every tree of the garden? And the woman said, no. He said we could have everything except the fruit from the tree in the middle of the garden. And he said, don't eat of that because if you do, you'll surely die. Do you remember what Satan said? You will not surely die. God is wrong. And ever since then, that's where the battle has been. I don't know about you. I'm not saying religion is right. I don't like religion. But I believe God is right. And I believe he's looking for people who will believe that. And I don't know about you, but I don't want to stumble and mutter along with a generation of zombies. I want to break out. Do you realize that even salvation, eternal life itself happens when I say God is right? Because if you think about the verse in the Bible that talks about salvation most, John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he sent his one and only son that whoever believes in him will not perish but have everlasting life. Do you realize that in order to get to heaven, it's not that God is saying join a church or go through the sacraments. God is saying, I just want you to agree that I'm right. I can do that. I'm a total screw up, but I can believe God is right. I mean, God says I'm a sinner. Well, I believe he's right. God says that he loves me. I believe he's right. God says he sent his son in skin to run the table and live a perfect life. I believe he's right. God said Jesus died to pay for my sins, and the blood that came out of his body was a currency that did exactly that. I believe he's right. The Bible says three days later, Jesus walked out of the grave under his own power. I've been working on the Easter message the last few weeks. I wish I could preach it right now. <laughs> I believe God is right. And the Bible tells me God has an offer on the table right now that if I will come spiritually bankrupt as I am with a life full of God is wrong, and if I will come to that table and I will say, God, I believe you are right. I believe Jesus died and rose again. The Bible says that I can have everlasting life and be forgiven eternally. I believe God is right. Anybody here today just say, Mark, I never realized it was that simple. I've been making it too complicated. I've tried churches. I've tried religions. I've, I've tried to be a better person. And I just, I've never had any power in my life. Is it, is it as simple as that? Well, God says it. Do you believe he's right? If you do, I want to do something with you right now. I want to pray a prayer. These aren't magic words. You can pray your own words if you want to. But I'm going to pray this prayer slowly so that if you want to repeat it with me, and the important thing is that you mean it, not the words. But if you want to reach out to God and have that forgiveness and the assurance of everlasting life, I want you to pray with me. Let's all be very still right now in this moment. Dear God, I am a sinner. I believe Jesus died for my sins. I believe he arose from the grave. I ask you to forgive me 
and to become my king. I trust Jesus. You said he would save me. I believe you're right. In Jesus' name. If you just prayed that prayer, you may not know what hit you, but you just had a really defining moment. And I want to give you a gift that will show you how defining moment it is. I have a a packet for you. Thank you. And all you got to do is come back to guest service. You bring your talk to us card. Just say, I pray with Mark. There's a little one back by the coffee shop. One out in the lobby. And just say, I pray with Mark. The packet has a DVD and a book I wrote that will answer a lot of questions and a coupon for a new Bible. Guys, I cannot wait. Next week, we're going to pick up this message and go a whole new direction. God bless. Thanks for being here. Let's break out.